0: Welcome to The Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want the truth about having a healthy, happy, strong body. Remember, your body was meant to move. Now here's your host, Stephen Sashen.
1: I often talk about how feet are the most important thing, but you know, I also talk about how glutes are the most important thing. And maybe to train your glutes, you need to train your feet, and to train your feet, you need to train your glutes. What's the connection? We're going to find out more about that on today's episode of The Movement Movement podcast, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body, starting feet first and where we break down the propaganda, the, the mythology Let's see if I can say that. Sometimes the outright lies that people have told you about what it takes to run or walk or work out or do yoga or CrossFit or ride bikes or anything you can think of and to do it enjoyably, efficiently, effectively. And did I mention enjoyably? I know I did because that's the most important part. If you're not having fun, do something different till you are. I'm Stephen and host of the Movement Movement Podcast, co-founder zero shoes.com. You know, we call this the movement movement because we're creating a movement that involves you. And I'll say more about that in a second about natural movement. We're trying to make natural movement, the obvious, better, healthy choice, the way people currently think of natural food. And that's the movement and the movement about you is spreading the word. This only happens because people discover the fun and benefits of natural movement and tell their two friends and they tell two friends and they tell two friends and so on. So if you want to be part of the movement part of the movement movement, go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com. You'll find all the previous episodes, you'll places uh, all the places where you can engage with our content on YouTube and Instagram and Facebook, et etc. You'll see where you can like and share and review and give us a thumbs up or you know hit the bell on YouTube. all those things you know how to do, I don't need to tell you. just of it is if you want to be part of the tribe, please subscribe. So let's jump in with my guest for today. Now I'm going to start before you say anything by seeing how much I can butcher your name in Chinese. Ready? Go ahead. Okay. All right. Let me see if I get it. Xie Chong. Very
0: close.
1: (laughs) So close. All right. How how would someone who can actually speak Chinese say it? Xie Chong. Xie Chong. Ah, interesting. Okay. Thank you. I love the correction. My Mandarin is limited to like five words, which gets me in trouble when I'm in China, because if I say anything, then people assume that I speak Chinese and it's bad news after that. Yeah. Gotcha. So Coach Chung, you know, I discovered, I don't remember how I found you, but I was so, so intrigued because for all the people who talk about foot strengthening, and we talk about it quite a bit, you have a very different approach. There's some things that are, you know, there's a nice Venn diagram and there's an overlap, but there's definitely things where your approach has a whole different foundation. And some of the the things that you're actually doing are a whole different game. Do you want to give people just the Reader's Digest version, the shorter version of what you're doing?
0: Yeah, sure. So a lot of people, I think, I want to mention something most people are probably aware of first. So for example, when people have cellulites, that's because the fascia tissue underneath is not in the right organization. This has a direct influence to how the skin, how the body functions. People have tried the acupuncture or any type of massage before. They, they will tell you, oh, it feels good afterwards, right? So these type of techniques that uh, people have tried and experienced before has a certain type of influence on the fascial system.
1: So just to, I'm going to back up a little bit and paint a, you know an umbrella over this. The fundamental thing that's interesting to me about what you're doing is you're focusing on the fascia rather than musculature per se. I mean, that fascia is obviously related to muscle and musculature, but your focus mm-hmm. is on fascia. Can you tell people, I mean, like what is fascia and how yes. what you're doing is the difference between attending to fascia versus just attending to muscles?
0: Sure. So back in, I guess, uh, when we have all these scientific studies on the human body, what the uh, scientists used to do is they, when they dissect the body, to study the organs, study the muscle, they remove the fascia, which is the yellowish, whitish content that surrounds and permeates throughout all the organs, all the tissues itself. And they thought this is something now important. But recent research just revealed the exact opposite, because they have done studies uh, through ultrasound studies on how fascia influences muscle contraction, force generation. And now we have uh, more understanding of how fascia, how acupuncture controls the superficial fascia. And in return, it has a benefit to the holistic fascia chain. And now we have people, for example, Mike Myers, we have people in Germany, Dr. Schneid, talking more about fascia health. So fascia is really this connected tissue that permeates within your body. It's everywhere in your body. There is no place that does not uh, have fascia. So to understand it another way, it's like that dark matter or dark energy (laughs) permeates in the universe, but we don't know what it does, but it's just there. So fascia, it's sort of like that.
1: And so... Talk about how the, what the difference is between doing fascial training and just doing, say, you know, muscular strength training.
0: When you do muscular strength training, you're working on the muscle fiber in the eccentric way much more. So you are inducing muscle for hypertrophy and you increasing blood flow. You want to create this micro tear to the muscle and get it bigger, so it can generate more force, more more contractile force. Fascial training, on the other hand, we're working on creating a more holistic body. We're more working on to create more responsive fascia web strength. This is what we're working on. And because fascia integrates muscle, so there's three layers of fascia that permeate and intertwines your muscle tissue. When your superficial layer of muscle moves and contracts, in order for it to interface with your interior muscle it has to go through fascia so by understanding this if you're training your training your fascia and making it really compliant and making it really responsive you can actually generate a lot of force over time and this can be measured
1: interesting all right so i want to jump into that some more and of course talk about where this came from how you found this and developed this but first because it is the movement movement podcast let's do something movementy. what can you share with people who are listening or watching to either diagnose something about the condition of their fascia or feel something that's actually something exercising where they can experience what we're starting to talk about?
0: Sure. Because our fascia starts from our feet, we all know about the plantar fascia. And I'm guessing a lot of people have suffered some type of pain in their plantar fascia in their life once or twice. So this plantar fascia, it needs to be stimulated, just like anything else, right? If you don't stimulate a healthy organ, it becomes dysfunctional atrophies. The simple exercise people or a simple assessment people can do is just by standing straight and in a heel off position, meaning that they try to get on their toes, on their ball of the foot and toes, okay? If they feel their body start to tremble and wobbly and they have absolutely no control and then the ankles start to shake, okay, that tells me their fascial connection is weak. And in this position, a lot of people who are quad dominant, meaning like their quad muscle is neurologically dominant, whatever they're doing, they're just using their quad. They don't feel any glutes. Their glutes is also soft. But in a person with good factual connection, their glutes is hard and activated in the heel of position. And they're extremely stable. And this is what we see in division one athletes, division one athlete and professional athlete. All these guys functionally very sound. They don't have to necessarily have big muscle, but their connective tissue strength is extremely high.
1: So if someone's going to stand on both feet and just elevate their heels a little bit, first of all, how high on their toes do you want them for this test? And how long do they need to be able to stand stably without, before they get any shaking to determine that they've got some fascial strength, some fascial integrity?
0: Sure. They can stand uh, about more than 45 degrees. So like around 45 to 55 degrees heel off the ground. And if they are only feeling their calves being taxed the most and they feel quad being taxed the most and they're very feel unnatural and, and wobbly, they need to basically that tells me that they need this type of training. They need training in their fascia because mm-hmm. what that tells me is that their glutes is not not working. And we know now that glutes in the muscle in the glutes, 70, more than 75 percent inserts into fascia. So there is a lot of faster content in the glutes that needs to be working in order for the person to actually use it in movement.
1: I'm always amazed at the number of runners that I've met, mostly more distance runners than sprinters, the number of runners that I've met who have no butts, who, you know, they don't engage their glutes at all. And I've done, I mean, I've been on the track. This is going to sound like I'm, like I'm some sort of perv, but you know, we, when we've done exercise, glute exercises, and they can't seem to do that, I'll stick my finger in their glute and go, just make, you know, try to contract that, make that harder. And they often can't do it. And then I, then I do the opposite. I go, all right, put your hand on my ass. (laughs) and, and I'll just, I I always
0: do that too. (laughs) So so we're (laughs) at the same kind of, I said, look, feel it. This is what, this is what happens. Yeah. This is what's supposed to happen in your body. And people feel it. they were like, okay, this is very different, different from mine.
1: Right. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing when I talk about walking properly, one of the first ways that I described this, I said, just, you know, like keep one foot on the ground, lift the other foot a little bit and then contract the glute of the foot that's on the ground, which because your glutes are hip extensors, that should make your foot go back. That'll make you move forward. And then just, you know, use your other foot to not fall on your face. A lot of people could not figure that out because they couldn't contract the glute first, which is what I was thinking when I was doing it. So then I tried another cue, which was, okay, think about being a figure skater or being an ice skater, like a speed skater and drive your heel back. And that one they could often do And it started to give them the hint about using their glutes. But I I think that a lot of what's gotten people's glutes turned off is just the style of walking, especially with big, thick, padded, elevated heel shoes, where you just kind of kick your foot out in front of you, land, and then try to essentially, you know, pogo stick off of it or hop over it rather than using your glutes and hamstrings as hip extenders, as prime movers. And it's fascinating to see how people like, I mean, they've just lost the ability to do that at all, to walk like normal humans.
0: Absolutely. I mean, having a very thick bottom of the shoe will change your mechanics forever, and this is on a subconscious level. You don't realize what it does is first of all it relaxes your plantar fascia and shield that stimulation from the bare ground. That's number one. That's just coming from a a neurological proprioceptive point of view. Right. Secondly, what it does is that because that added, even if you just add one inch, your body have to adapt that one inch so to adapt that your foot actually have to relax even more to dorsiflex higher than necessary you right. you watch people who are who walk around for example in slippers or with very zero bottom shoes they do not dorsiflex mm. they walk naturally but with people who are wearing those high heel uh, very thick soles they will have to dorsiflex to accommodate that type of mechanical interference. So right. over time they are, they, they lost the fascia tensioning in their foot. And also they have this wrong neurological pattern in their ankle. So now you have double, you have a double whammy there. And then because of lack of fascia tensioning, their glutes start to degenerate because everything's connected.
1: It's interesting. You say that I was on the track last weekend and there was someone I was watching, I mean, I watch people run all the time. And most of the time I just shake my head a lot, but this person in particular, I'm looking to see, you know, what the what his shin angle was when he was landing, where his foot was landing in relation to his body. Everything fundamentally looked okay, but to your point, just as his foot was about to land, he dorsiflexed, which for people who don't know, is raising your toes towards your knee. I'm um, mm-hmm. just, you know, pulled his toes way up in a way that was completely unnecessary. Had he not done that, he would have been landing in a, you know, great stance, nice and strong, using his body correctly. But to your point, I mean, I hadn't really thought of it. It's just like a habit that he's developed of lifting yes. his toes. And again, completely unconscious. It's a really interesting thing. So I'm going to, again, kind of backing up or going around a little bit. Talk to me about how you came to this. Where did you start to you know, find this out, figure this out, put it together?
0: So, well, I, I'm not a, I wasn't born in the U.S. I was born in Beijing, China. And when I was young, I studied martial arts. And one of the things that uh, we did was uh, the training for martial arts. It's horse stance or called ma bu. Basically, you will get into my squat stance and hold it there for a long period of time. And this is also known as the asymmetric fascia tensioning, supposedly. And I did a lot of this. And when I came to the States, I started to play basketball.
1: And I started to play basketball <laughs> it's, it's with- required, a, It's required by law. I mean, you had to.
0: Yeah. So <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I'm a very active person and I'm very uh, competitive also. And I noticed that I was losing more than I'm winning. So I know there's something is missing. Also at that time, I, I was also uh, brainwashed into all these uh, shoe hypes, like oh <laughs> this is a Jordan's, uh, right. you know, whatever Nike came up with. So I, I, so I wear those because I saw you know all the stars, basketball stars wear them. It, somehow it has some connection, so I wear them.
1: Well, yeah, you want to be like those guys.
0: I mean, come on, you're you know you're exactly. not a black guy, but what the hell? Yeah, exactly. So, but the, what happened afterwards was I developed knee pain. Mm and uh you know of course like like anyone else at that time i just you know i went to the doctor i went to see what's what's going on so and they said oh your, your quad is weak your surrounding uh, muscle around the knee is weak you do this and that they gave me some exercises right and also you know also like at that time i i was young i was like around 20 then, and and uh there's a lot of fitness program out there on um, strength training, on um, 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 vertical jump, on um, um, running. There's a lot. So I I follow their programs. I was lifting weights. I, I was a gym rat. I, I was in the gym 24. Most, I mean, whenever I have free time, I was in the gym lifting. I was trying to, because I'm not a lazy person, I, I like to work to just better myself. But then I realized over time I was relying on the muscle for all my movement. And it was very it became very different, it's very different because I actually take myself and I see myself move and land. It's, it's very muscle bound. It's not, uh, it doesn't look correct. Then at that same time, I met a very good friend, well, my best friend to this day. And his name is Peter. And I mentioned this a lot because uh, he really uh, made me see what is going on in the feet because he grew up in the mountains when he was young and he always run barefoot. He always run barefoot. And he clearly remembers that in his memory. And this guy, hes I would say he was he was on the light build side. He's not muscular or anything. And we used to work out, and he, he definitely lifted much less than I did. So I'm like, so he doesn't have the muscle strength, yet he is extremely athletic, and he doesn't have any knee pain. What is going on here? Then one day, we were just watching a basketball game. I still remember that was the game. I think it was one of the championship games and we were at his house. And you know how in, in the Chinese culture, we don't wear the shoe inside the house. Right. So both of us were barefoot. So we were just, uh, you know, having, having a good time. And I, I realized that his foot has blisters on top of toes and his toes are curled and has a lot of these black tendons visible. It's very different from mine. Very different. So I asked him, you know, how did you get this? What, what, what's happening? He's like, I don't know, it's just <laughs> natural. So then I asked him to just do some movement for me and jump and, and land and, and move around. And, and I, I see it's completely different than how I use my foot. So from there- well, So wait, what, so what were you noticing? Well, first of all, ankle stiffness is tremendous. And mm-hmm. he had a, also when he was off his heels, he was extremely stable, extremely, and his glutes were hard. Oh, interesting. And At that time, my glutes were soft. (laughs) Got it. So I wanted to find out more about this. And, you know, I actually, at that time, I asked a lot of these fitness groups, and I asked them. So I I go, the the basic problem is that why is it when I lift weights, I cannot use glutes? If I lift weights, I cannot use glutes. That means when I run or move, I'm not going to be using glutes. They had no, at that time, they, they don't really have a good answer for this. And they told me, yeah, you got to do more like isolation exercises and stuff like that, which I did. But I found it to be not helpful because once I get out of that isolation stance, the effect off. you can't use your glutes again because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm actually standing to, to execute these movements versus lying down doing the hip, hip thrust. Mm. So then I did more research, much more research. I also studied Tai Chi. And while uh, the Tai Chi principle is called silk reeling strength. And this strength, after I understand what it is, it's really what, what described the fascia strength is. Silk and
1: silk reeling strength. Silk reeling strength. Interesting. It's an interesting metaphor.
0: There is correlation. I mean, physically, phys- physically, if you look at the silk web, you look at the, you look at the fashion. Wow. There's just, everything just matches. So you mm-hmm. That way, I kind of understand, oh, this is what they're describing. Also, one, one thing that they mentioned before is that the, the principle of Tai Chi is one part moves, all part moves. Mm-hmm. Meaning it's not anything that you do in your body, any movement you execute in your body, it should not be a segmented movement. It should right. be using your entire tensegrity model in your body, which is your fascia. So with this knowledge, I look into their foundational training of Tai Chi. A foundational training of Tai Chi is really uh, the zhan zhuang, which means that you stand in isometric. But what they often, I think 90% of the masters, uh, they don't talk about this, or maybe even more, maybe 98% don't talk about this, is that they require the person to grip their foot. It's a very generic term, often missed in translation and often don't get talked about enough. So I did the exercise. I I didn't get the, the benefit I was looking for, but I did not miss about that part. So, I spent a long time over ten years trying to figure out and I found out what exactly and I, I now I break it down to six steps to show people how exactly you can activate your foot the correct way and guess what this happens when you actually activate your feet the right way, your foot start to generate a neurological effect and your foot start to morph physiologically you can see your foot. For example, you measure it three weeks, take a picture in 12 weeks, take a picture again in some other timeline, you can see your foot gradually change its look. Then I went to a neurologist to measure my glutes EMG reading. And the neurologist said that he never seen something like this before. It was off the charts, just standing there. I'm not doing anything. I'm just simply putting my mind to my feet.
1: Interesting. Wait, so you're, you're putting your mind to your feet and not trying to flex, if you will, your glutes. I'm not, the active, I'm not trying to squeeze my glutes as well. I'm only
0: squeezing my foot. I'm only controlling the plantar fascia, and it has a direct influence to my glutes, and it was off the charts. Because we also compared the EMG yeah.
1: of me doing the hip thrust. The signaling
0: is very different. It lasted much longer.
1: Interesting. So, okay. There's a lot to unpack here. So this whole concept of gripping the foot now, FYI. So I did Tai Chi for a number of years. And one of the things that was unusual about the group that I was practicing with, the teacher was a guy who started, well, he'd, when I met him, he'd been doing Tai Chi for 22 years. He was 27. His dad was a world champion judo player and somehow got him and got Eric into Tai Chi. And Eric, he kind of like you, he really wanted to Find the and, like me as well, find the truth underneath some of these things. So, if Tai Chi was the fundamental fighting art, which is the way it was, he wanted to see what Tai Chi was like as a fighting art, not as a as a real martial art, not as something that old people do to relax. And so that was the way we treated it is that this was a real fighting art. So we spent a lot of time doing isometric standing, a lot of standing on one leg, and I don't know that we were doing what we would call gripping the foot, but we were certainly paying a lot of attention to the foot and where you were feeling the contact with the foot and what you were doing with your foot, it was, we did, we did a lot of crazy things in that class. Actually, you'll get a kick out of this. The way I I started doing Tai Chi with Eric was we actually met doing Aikido. And then someone made a comment that Eric did Tai Chi and I went over to his house. He was living with like, there was like five guys living in this house in Brooklyn. And someone said, so have you ever had Eric push you? I said, no, don't know what you're talking about. So Eric says, all right, well, I want you to stand, you know, I'll describe this for people, just stand one foot in front of the other, bend your knees, put one of your arms in front of your body parallel to the ground, you know, bend your arms. So there's like a 90 degree angle between your upper arm and your forearm, just in front of your body and just relax. And he gently puts his hands on my forearm and he's kind of moving it around gently. And it was really quiet in the room. Their living room had no furniture. And I kind of I look over my shoulder, kind of wondering where everyone was. And they were all standing about 10 feet behind me, holding a mattress vertically. <laughs> and I turned back to Eric and I'm about to say, what's with the mattress? And he just looks at me, he goes, bye-bye. And what it felt like was that he just tapped my forearm. And then I flew and hit the mattress 10 feet behind me. And once I got off the ground, I went, okay, I, I got to learn how to do this. <laughs> so it was a very different approach to Tai Chi. But again, I don't, I don't think we paid as much attention. Well, we certainly didn't pay as much attention to the foot the way you did. And I'm curious if you could say more about this whole idea of gripping the foot, because obviously that's a piece of what we're talking about.
0: Yeah. So so the foot on the bottom of the foot, that's the plantar fascia. So a lot of people who grew up barefoot, who are actually to today's elite athletes, mm. they, for example, uh, Ronaldinho from Brazil, who retired as one of, perhaps one of the best uh, soccer players in the world today. When they were young and then they had no money, they played barefoot. Right. And when your body learns how to play barefoot, you're not going to have movement behaviors that will hurt your foot or heel strike. Right. You are going to spend majority of the time on your ball of the foot. And the stimulation from the harsh environment creates neurological stimulation. When the foot tries to adapt to that, it has to adapt it in a faster tensioning way. That means providing more tension in your tissue, mm. more tensioning in your foot. And if you are raised up in this type of neurologically stimulating environment with movement integrated, you are a very good mover. Now, majority of the people today, we live in the urban society, we grew up with the shoe. So how do we actually create this type of phenomena? So there's people who, there is the the barefoot uh, group that choose to, you know, adapt to the harsh environment and try to create some type of uh, neurological stimulation by going barefoot. But if they're already grown, meaning like if neurologically they're grown, if they want to tap into more of this connection, they actually have to put a lot of intentional effort into tensing their feet, into tensing their fascial connection to make it happen. And before I thought, you know, let let me just do my barefoot exercises and uh, try to create some of the stimulation. Yes, it does help a lot. But after I studied the work of Huber and Beasel, their neurological experiment on the cat, the visual cortex, I understand that there is a developmental progression of of the neurological connection. So at certain time, if you don't have enough neurological stimulation during the developmental stages, this means when we were younger, that part of the neurologic connection is forever weakened. Mm. And it will take a much bigger effort to reverse that. And and this is why I think in, in another way answers the question why some barefoot runners, they still get injured.
1: I've also seen a bunch of barefoot runners who have, how do I want to put this? They figured out a way to run, let me try that differently. They figured out a way to be barefoot and accomplish what they're trying to accomplish, say run a half marathon or run a marathon. But when you look at them from the outside, they aren't necessarily running. So for example, here's a weird version of this. Dr. Irene Davis at Harvard has a force plate treadmill, and she did an experiment giving people some biofeedback where there's a screen in front of the treadmill with a line on it showing some amount of force. And she said, you know, I want you to run and just keep the amount of force that you generate below that line. And I said, I can predict what happened for a lot of people. She says, what's that? I said, they ran or they, they were able to keep the force below that line by doing something that looked like a really fast kind of weird walking, like Groucho Marx. Yes, walking yes. exactly. Said, yeah, that's exactly what happened. I said, because so they figured out how to move across the ground barefoot, but they're certainly not doing something called running. And similarly when people talk to me about what exercises do I do before I run barefoot I go there's nothing you can do I mean there's things that you can do that you're going to talk about I'm sure actually but the difference between any exercise you're going to do and running barefoot it's night and day because you're just way more force way more often you know if it's not the same I mean there's certainly things that you want to do to get stronger that's helpful but the thing that's going to really make a difference is running barefoot and it never occurred to me until just now that I mean, I don't know, certainly I, I may have missed that developmental cycle for using my feet properly, but I was, I spent a lot of time running around as a kid, a lot of time barefoot. I was an all-American gymnast so and, and doing floor and vaulting. So I spent a lot of time doing- On oh, your barefoot. Exactly. And so before gymnastics, I was a diver, which is also barefoot training in many ways. Yes. So a good history of that in advance, which is interesting. Anyway, that was, that was a tangent from something. I don't remember where we were going on that. Oh oh um just the oh the neurological thing of just you know whether you get it and, and what it takes to then train afterwards. So now to your point though, it's funny when we started zero shoes, I got introduced to some people who make sandals that are super thick with really big arches and I couldn't figure out why and they said, "Oh well, it's because you know once you're over the age of 40, you can't develop arch strength." And I remember thinking, "That's an interesting position to take." I I started running barefoot when I was 45. And from doing that, I developed arches in my feet. So clearly I had developed arch strength. So that was clearly nonsense what they were saying. And we mm-hmm. know that 90-year-olds, when they do a weightlifting program, can get stronger. So clearly it seemed like Yes, right. but because the amazing. body adapts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Bodies can adapt. But it definitely does take, and it's different for different people because there's just idiosyncratic differences about how well you adapt to activity. But I, I love having to put, like doing the combination of attending to the movement or the activity you want to do, say running as an example, but then doing the supplemental work that it takes to really make that better. And knowing this is a long process, I don't want to make it sound onerous or annoying, but just it's a lifelong process of improvement. You can always be doing more to get a little better. And people, I don't know what it's like in other parts of the world. I've only lived here, but it's amazing how people just want a quick instant fix. And when companies say, hey, here's our magic shoe that's going to do that. And it's a big, thick padded shoe with motion control and art support, which does the opposite. People are, you know, have been- Yeah, ch- high-tag shoe, low-tag foot. That's, that's, <laughs> that's how yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah. yeah, it's a good line. But I mean, it, you know, we've been so conditioned to look for an external instant answer that many people aren't comfortable just doing the ongoing, I don't want to use the word work because that just makes it sound, you know, like it's a pain in the butt, but just the ongoing process of helping your body work. It's fascinating. Changing a habit. The habit's a really interesting part. And there's two aspects of that that occur to me. One is during COVID, I've been doing more exercise than I have outside of COVID. Not because I had more time or whatever, but because I, I was just getting kind of bored, I think. And I found that running zero shoes has been very tiring. And so I can't do big workouts. So I had to find things that I could do in like 15 to 20 minutes, because that's like all the time I've got at the end of a day or the beginning of a day. And so that's been really, really helpful. And what's been fascinating is watching something that I knew from when I was a kid is that the benefits really kick in a little bit after you feel like you need to quit because you're not seeing the benefits. You have to get over that hump and then you start to see it. Like when I was a gymnast, my best friend and I, we were lifting weights one summer. The first month was just kind of felt like we were just getting used to how to lift the weights. The second month we were seeing improvement but it was the third month where we got much bigger and much stronger now here i am 40 years later i don't know what's going to how quickly my body's going to change and adapt but some of the stuff that i've been doing i mean my wife said this morning she says what uh, what what have you been up to is it just because you've been you know playing with these kettlebells which is something i've been doing lately i said no i think it's just the consistency of just doing things that i've been doing in the last 8 months that's been making a difference and part of it was just getting over that urge it kicks in usually around the three or four week mark of going. Got to try something different now. I'm getting kind of bored, and then right. that's getting past that, then it becomes a habit. And that consistency is the most important part, or one of the most important parts. So you talked about the six exercises, six stages. Do you want to chat about that?
0: So the the foot, right? So the first part is your toes. So remember the the assessment you've done, right? I've taken a look at your your feet as well, and your right. feet does show a lot of fascial tensioning signs yeah. where. If I look at someone else, I pull someone off to the street, and say, "Let me look at your feet," they they probably don't have that.
1: You want to describe the, what some of those are for you know, humans sure. in my feet. So
0: the first thing is that you you look at how the flexor tendons on top of your toes how they are pronounced if they are they do show at all. Some people they just don't have any. They don't show, and this has to do with the superficial fascia. If your fis- superficial fascia has enough fascial web strength these tendons are more likely to show than than not. And also another very important clue is your anterior tendon, which is the very thick tendon in the front. And this tendon is extremely important. Many people don't know. And I also see like many trainers talk about this tendon in the exact opposite way. They tell people, do not fire this tendon when you exercise because it's going to make you more tired and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, so there are people. So for people, I mean, if they want to try and see if they have what their anterior typical tendon is. This is the thing, well, well, I can think of a bunch of ways of doing it. If you want to have someone do a little self-diagnostic to find where that is and see how pronounced it may be, how would you do that for them?
0: So it's right in front of their, between their shin and their foot. Yep. And it's right in front of their ankle. There is a very big, thick tendon. You cannot miss it. People who have, when they stand, when they stand, yes, exactly. That's the one. When people have problem, Activating their glutes and their their glutes are soft and they can't really engage in any way whatsoever. This tendon usually is non-existent. Mm, so when they stand wow. there, this tendon does not get activated at all. To activate this tendon, you need to actually use what what I call the hyper arc, because you have to engage your feet. You have to be activating your toes. You have to be activating all these intrinsic muscles in your feet down below. So this creates tension to your tendon. It's like, uh, you know, you can be a master violinist. You can have all the skill in the world, but you, you get this violin that the string has no tension. Whenever you're playing, the, the tune is out of tune. You cannot work in such environment. So the body is the same. You can have the best mind in athletics. You can have, you can be a best mover. But if your body physiologically does not give you that tool, right. you cannot perform. So the foot and the barefoot shoe together will make you that master violinist that you want to become. Because a lot of times we don't pay attention to our feet.
1: So toes, anterior tendon. What
0: else? And your arc. Mm. So they all have to be activated uh, synchronously, to, in order for your anterior tibial tendon to be pronounced and activated. At this time, then you can you can do your movement. Your ankle should be actually locked in in its in this form, in this position, which is a pretty much a 90-degree angle. This is why like people look at the athlete and they say, wow, this, you know, this wonderful running form is so beautiful. They just raise their knees and then they like, they're like propel themselves. It's so elegant and effortless. Now if you look at the heel striker, it's really sore on in the eye. You look at them, they're struggling, they're heel striking, and then they're like, oh my knee is hurting. And also the people who are first transitioning from those uh, horrendous shoes that they had and then to barefoot running or minimum uh, shoes, they still, because there's so many, so many years of neurological habit built into them. Right. Like what you said, they're not running. They're like fast walking. Right. They're, they're running in dorsiflexion. So that's what's happening because they, they don't know how to run because they never had that, that uh, correct neurological teaching. Their foot was never taught properly.
1: I'll tell you, you know, the thing about f- seeing people run beautifully for anyone who hasn't had the chance to watch in live an Olympic level sprinter, it's almost indescribable. I mean, I'm a really good sprinter. I'm a Masters All American. I'm one of the fastest guys in my age. Group. I believe you. You you but, are very high level. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm saying. But watching me is so different than watching someone who's you know 25 year old guy or woman who's like you know top of their game. There's a guy. Oh gosh, I just blanked on his name and I always do. It'll pop into my head that I got to train with a couple of years ago. He and his wife, his wife is Mandy White and his name is, he's a 400 meter, 200 meter and 400 meter runner. And it's killing me. Anyway, watching him when he was training, his ground contact time was so short. It looked like he almost didn't hit the ground. It looked like, you know, like maybe his foot was approaching the ground and then he stepped on an IED and then he was getting so much movement out of that, so much propulsion out of that. I mean, again, it looked like he stepped on a bomb and it blew him forward. It was, it was amazing. And similarly, I've watched, I was, I happened to be in Berlin when Usain Bolt set the world record. It was him and Tyson Gay and Asafa Powell and watching them run. It just doesn't look human. I mean, these are the you know best in the world and it looks at like nice. a hold. It looks, there's a weird kind of combination of effortless and effortful, but I mean, it's just inconceivable. Usain Bolt, I was at the 70 meter mark about five rows off the track. And that's about when he hits his full speed. So this guy's running by me at about 29 miles an hour. And when you see somebody running of their own volition, fast enough to get a speeding ticket in my neighborhood, mm-hmm, <laughs> here, mm-hmm. here's what your brain does. Your brain goes, what? Because it just yes. doesn't, it's like nothing you've ever seen before. It's amazing.
0: Exactly. I mean, we, uh, so a lot of athletes that uh, I work with that who are trying out for, professional teams we have to get their 40 yard dash time from for example 4 uh, 4.7 down to 4.3 and 4.4 4. yeah when we do this type of training to the foot what we're trying to do is create fascial tensioning in the ankle so imagine if you have any type of slack in your joints mm. when you when your foot just like what you said when your foot impacts the ground if there's any give in any other joints that force is going to leak out. That energy right. is going to leak out right away. But to your joint is not meant to handle force. But fascia, it's what's supposed to keep be keeping them together and acting in unison. So by doing you know, uh, fascia tensioning training, you can make this holistic chain stronger. This is how we can get athletes from four, running 4.7 to 4.4.
1: Love it. So that's a good transition point. Can you talk more about what the fascial training looks like? And by the way, for people who are listening, you've got a whole program about this. It's not going to be a surprise. We'll tell you about that towards the end, but can you give people just a taste of what that, what that looks like so they get a sense of it? Sure.
0: So first we have to understand what fascia is response to. We know fascia is important, but how do we actually make it respond to what we want? So first I look at the acupuncture. acupuncture has it the reason why people poke a needle in you they're not hating uh, you or or you have some type of uh magical spot in your body they're poking you to activate that magical spot it's not that
1: wait Recent i got I've got, to, I've got to stop right there i so love that you just said that because i mean it's one of my favorite things when people talk about acupuncture and it's like you go to five different acupuncturists for the same thing and they'll poke needles in five different spots so to hear someone say, yeah, no, there's a, there's a there there, but not for the reason that you've been told, that's my favorite thing that for someone to hear. So what are doing? Please continue. <laughs>
0: sure. So what recently people found out, uh, that's this is uh, this is the work of Dr. Helen Lejevin from uh, Harvard Medical School. So she had a curiosity on, on acupuncture as well. So using the ultrasound study, what she saw was that when the needle penetrates your skin, it actually, what happens, your fascia tries to feed it as there is a wound. So your, your fascia reacts to it by grabbing the little tiny little. So it intertwines and circles around the needle. So when the practitioner actually uses that little needle and twist, yeah. what it does, it creates a spiral. And that spiral pulls your entire fascia with it. And by studying on the mice, it's not just on that point. It's the entire body. Interesting. So what that creates is a holistic effect to your fascia sliding. Because also what, what we learned today through ultrasound study in vivo is that people who have chronic lower back pain, their fascia and a muscle sliding is much less mm. than the healthy people who have no chronic back pain. Mm. So by doing acupuncture, by putting that needle there and manipulate it by moving the fascia physically, it creates healing. And fascia system, this, here's another thing. Lymphatic system follows the fascia system. For those people who don't know about lymphatic system, lymphatic system is really like the sewer system in the body. Right. Anytime you have an injury, lymphatic system has to take care of getting rid of all the dead tissues, the dead proteins, or accumulation of proteins in any type of injury site. Mm-hmm. By having your fascial fascial system moving, you encourage the lymphatic system to help you get rid of these waste. Interesting. So my training, so here's the types yeah, of my training. Saying, we're not so, recommending,
1: we're not suggesting that acupuncture is part of the training, but that was a good, good lead in. So my training does the exact same thing, but it
0: does it from inside. Got it. So without somebody poking you with a needle and manipulating your super layer fascia, when you introduce fascia tension into your feet, for example, you're creating a anchor for your fascia. Because what happens is that when the fascia, fascia responds to isometric tensioning. That's when the fascia gets used. If you are moving a weight, you're concentric eccentric. That actually utilizes much less fascia. Okay. But the isometric state utilizes your fascia the most. So this is why we developed the method of training the foot so that you are creating an anchor for your fascia. Now you have an anchor in your fascia. Basically, let's say you have a rubber band. Now you hold on to the one side of the rubber band. Then the other side, whatever you're doing, it has to go from the anchor to that point. Now you're stretching all your fascia for your movement. As of before, if this part has no anchor, it's loose. Whatever you're doing, you're using the muscle, it's segmented. So the fascia will be used much less, and it, it doesn't create that type of movement effect. Interesting.
1: So can you give people an example of like, I want to go for one of the more unusual fascial training exercises that you would teach? I, I know what my favorite is, but I am gonna. I, I want to see which one you think you would pick that might be surprising for people to discover is useful.
0: To be surprising, I would probably say, well, the simplest is probably people don't get is the hyper And I see a lot of uh, trainers on social media try to copy my work. So they say, look, if you do this way, it creates a fascial tension, but they are doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Like people think, okay, is this just a regular jump? You're just hopping. You're just doing resmic jumps. You know, what's the what's the really what's different? There is a tons of difference in the hyper hop and the regular regular hop. The, in the regular hop, what I what I said before, the anterior tibial tendon is not activated. Okay. So the so the person who has no expression of the anterior tibial tendon, when they hop, every hop they do is muscle driven, meaning their fascia is actually not doing the work. And their, their heel will drop and the ankle, the ankle will give. So every step they're hopping, they're giving. This is how regular people hop. Now you go to the hyperarch hop. Now you have to use fascia tensioning. Now you have to you have to put a lot of tension in your fascia. You secure your ankle, your ankle's not moving. Mm-hmm. Now when you hop this way, it creates a holistic fascia chain. And this whole chain is moving. And what it's also doing is if you have anterior knee pain. That's because there's entangled fascia tissue there. What it will do is actually pulse, It pulls the fascia because we're doing this exercise. It pulls the fascia and stretch it. And this stretch it creates healing.
1: Interesting. I tell you, my favorite was actually the sort of your version of the depth jump. So which for people who don't know depth jump, you're going to stand on a box of some height and just step off of it and then catch yourself, just land basically. And the way that this was typically taught by People who brought a lot of plyometric training to America from Russia is yes. that they want you to land flat-footed. They want you to basically and sometimes land even on your heel. And it, and the idea is just sort of catch yourself. It's the eccentric part of uh, of any sort of squat motion. So you're just slowing yourself down when you land. But your version of landing on the toes, basically on the ball of the foot, and engaging the arch and keeping that ankle stable a whole different game. And yeah, I mean, different. Yeah, I love that one. I wonder. I can imagine that for many people, if they're new to this, they can try that and they won't be able to keep their heel off the ground. Their heel they off cannot. The ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's a that's a really that's one of the reasons that I really love that exercise is that it's an almost instant barometer for how well you're doing. Just because you can feel instantly how stable your ankle joint is when you land.
0: But let me tell you a very fascinating aspect of that exercise. If okay. you ask someone who is I'll say before seven years old. Yeah. Who never had too long of this bad neurological programming from the big shoe companies. Right. You ask them to, you ask a little kid to jump and land. They can do it naturally. They can do it. (laughs) So what does that mean? We are basically damaging ourselves over time. Yeah. You are supposed to be adult and you cannot do something that you did when you were a child. And all kids are faster movers. They don't have muscle.
1: Oh, you know, at the beginning of COVID, they closed all the public schools around here. And so none of the tracks were open. So we couldn't find anywhere to train, but there was this one sort of called a charter school, semi-private school that was way east of town and where the majority of the population in that neighborhood was Hispanic. That's relevant because when, you, when we went to that track, there was a whole bunch of people there and they were all playing soccer, many of them barefoot. And then the kids, especially the little kids were running around the track and they were doing, they did two things. They had, one thing they did was they ran with perfect form. I mean, just impeccable form. They were midfoot, foot landers. Their feet were right underneath their body. They had just the right amount of body lean. But the other thing they did was my favorite was they were laughing when they ran. They were smiling when they ran. They were doing it because it was what they did to play. And when they were tired, they would stop not for very long and then start again. So it was like just enough to reset and away they went. And it was just so much fun to watch. Oh and usually it was like a pack of, th- of four or five of them holding hands doing this and just like running around the track for fun with again perfect form. It looked like they were expending no energy to do it. It was It should not be. Oh mm-hmm. man, it was it was delightful. And then there was the older kids who did not look like that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think this is why your work is very important to the next generation. Because if we keep letting all these uh, shoe companies, the big shoe companies, have our kids wear these big, thick soles, yeah, and just wear them neurologically incorrectly, we are basically destroying our <laughs> ourselves. We we are, and then we're spending more money on Medicare for chronic pain than anything else. We need more. You know, minimum shoes for, for kids, really, because yeah. before it's, we just don't have those.
1: No. And to be candid, it, it's a little tricky because manufacturing shoes for kids, the manufacturing costs about the same amount as manufacturing for adults because it's, it's in the labor, not the materials. And so most companies who sell shoes for kids don't make money doing it or make very little money because, or, uh, or they're selling, you know, super expensive shoes for kids. Making good shoes for kids is uh, is challenging from a business perspective. It's something we're looking to be doing more of.
0: Can I give you a suggestion? Yeah, please. I think for example, the first thing is it's is people's awareness of how important the foot is to their yeah. neurological health, right? And and also their fascia health. But I think if you can create a subscription model, so you're not just you're not just selling one yeah. pair of shoes, you're selling a an entire generation, a, a kid's yep. entire generation, age six to age eighteen. Yeah, to subscribe to this model of development, then you can make money. It
1: possibly suffice it to say it's a bit challenging from the business perspective, and something that we're looking to be doing more of and expand. Because uh, obviously, I agree with you. And in fact, Irene Davis at Harvard has a great line. She goes, "If we just get kids wearing shoes like yours in twenty years, we won't be treating adults for the billions of dollars of problems that they currently present with." And I agree. And, yeah, and you know that that would be a, a very different world before you know we, I want to wrap it up in a bit but I want to bring one thing up that just popped in my head for the 10th time can you say something about flat feet and high arches because there's and I'll preface this by saying that people especially in America have a lot of opinions about those two things that are not based on reality so can you chat about that right
0: yeah I think I know a lot about this and uh I think more than more than the uh uh, some of the, uh, the maybe some of the people that had different opinions about you know if the high arcs are better or or low arcs are better or flat arc is is if it's a defective or not really it has to do a lot of these arc height has to do with genetics. You can have high arc functional, you can have low arc functional, you can have almost no arc functional. The key here is how much connect facial connection you have to your boots and upstream. A lot of the uh, NBA athletes today, they are African descendant, and they they have almost no arc, and yet they are performing the highest at the highest level. So chasing the just the arc high physically from a from a outside again, it's a it's official superficial type of uh, desire. It's 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 not gonna get you anywhere. So having let's say an insult, right, creating some type of arc that only helps temporarily. It also creates a bad neurological habit. And that does not create a fascial connection from the feet to the glutes. So the, really the key here is to develop that healthy fascial connection from the feet to the glutes. Then it, you will li- love your body much more. You don't blame your parents why I have this foot, you know? <laughs> so I see a lot of people, they do that. They hate their body because they, they blame their parents. Oh, you, Your foot is flat. Now I'm flat. Now I have pain. But well, that's right. not true because your parents never wear those type of bad shoes that you had when you were a child.
1: Yep. Well, I'm not surprised to hear that the way you've presented that is almost exactly the way that I say it. I say, you know, it's 90% genetic and arch height is not the issue. Strength is strength, and flexibility are the important things. Some people who have, you know, very high arches, they they just need to get a little mobilization going because they've gotten just into this pattern where things are hypertonic, but not being functional. And so, yeah, you, you went exactly where I imagined you were, although we did not prepare this in advance and I didn't expect that. So, If people want to discover more about what you're doing, and I highly recommend that they do. I mean, there's, you know, I was putting together a list of people who are developing programs that are really valuable for foot and ankle strength and foot and and training. There's only about a half a dozen that I've seen that are in any way worth paying attention to. Yours, of course, is one of them, which is why we're having this conversation. So how can people find you and what you're doing and get involved and discover more for themselves?
0: My website, secret of Athleticism. Or you can Google my name, Chongzi Hyperarch, Hyperarch so Fascial up. Training.
1: Well, so wait, let's back up. So Secrets of Athleticism. Did I get did I say it, did I get it right? I forgot. Yes, I to That's you. the website. Okay. So that's one. And then Chongzi, so it's C-H-O-N-G-X-I-E. That they can look you up that way. You've got a lot of stuff on YouTube. So a lot. Yes, there's, yeah, so there's a lot to play with there. And anything else that you want people to know in terms of just finding out more?
0: Just keep on looking for our work in, in the UFC because right now we're two-time world champion and we're going to continue doing so.
1: Oh, that's a, that's a good one. I like it. Well, thank you so, so much. I mean, I'm, uh, again, I, I wish I had any idea how I first bumped into you and I feel horrible that it's been as long as I've been doing this, that it'd take until now. But so, so be it, here we are. And I can't encourage people enough to just go check out um, your work. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And for everybody else, thank, thank you, you as well. As a reminder, go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com. If you can't remember the links for this, we'll put them in the show notes so you'll be able to find them there. And as always, if you want to find out previous episodes, et cetera, et cetera, and how to find all of our content in different places, that's at jointhemovementmovement.com. If you have a request or a question or suggestion, drop me an email, move at jointhemovementmovement.com. And as always, like I say, if you want to be part of the tribe, please do subscribe. And most importantly, go out, have fun and Live Life Feet First.
0: You've been listening to the Movement Movement Podcast with host Stephen Sashen. Remember to join the tribe and subscribe at jointhemovementmovement.com.